This is the Accidental Safety Pro brought to you by Vivid Learning Systems and the Health and Safety Institute. This episode was recorded on April 3rd, 2020. My name is Jill James, Vivid's Chief Safety Officer, and today I'm joined by Katika Roy. Katika is a gender economist and CEO of Pipeline Equity. You heard me right, listeners. Our guest today is a gender economist, not a safety and health professional like the rest of us. So I bet you're wondering why this subject? Well, the answer is simple. You all requested it. In the nearly two years we've been doing this show, you've likely noticed the deliberate selection I've made ensuring equal representation of male and female voices as guests. You've likely also noticed my female guests often address challenges they face in our profession as well as their successes. Many of our guests have offered advice based on their career experiences, and many have offered ideas as to how each of us, male and female, can open doors and encourage women to join our professional practice, which is a STEM occupation. I've been receiving a steady stream of emails, phone calls, texts from women and from some men asking for advice, wanting to know how to succeed as a woman in this field, how to get a seat at the decision-making table, how to address issues of pay and equity without losing your job, and if you really have to be one of the boys in order to be successful. Now, while our guest can't necessarily answer all of those questions, I have been listening, and it's your questions and interest um, are the reason why I asked Katika Roy to be our guest today. So listeners, thank you for those questions, and I hope you find this helpful. Welcome to the show, Katika. Thank you for having me. So let's set the stage for our listeners. What is a gender economist? A gender economist is someone who looks at the economy um, through the lens of gender. Uh, so really looks at um, economic indicators and data and disaggregates the um, information by gender. So it's not just women. It's uh, 50% women, 50% men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So what, how does somebody become a gender economist? What was your, what was your career path that, that got you here and eventually the founder of a software company, which is Pipeline Equity? Very nonlinear. I think, uh, you know, it's been said that um, most career paths are like a jungle gym, and that's true. I, you know, my undergrad degree is in political science with an emphasis in legal studies. Obviously, economics is a part of that. Um, but I'm also a former programmer, fluent in four programming languages, UI UX designer, um, and expertise in data science. So I think, you know, kind of a, a different thread of um, degrees and experiences that ultimately led me to uh, where I am today. Interesting. As, so the, the, our listeners are very familiar with um, labor laws as it relates to safety and health in the workplace. Um, have you had any, any um, intersections in your career that kind of launched this for you from a, from a labor perspective? Yeah, from a labor perspective, not so much from a safety perspective, but I... Um... So I'm actually a breadwinner mom who fought to be paid equitably twice and won. Mm. Uh, I didn't file a lawsuit or anything. I just, uh, I think given my history um, in my background in political science with an emphasis in legal studies, understood how to do legal research and uh, just uh, stood up for myself. So one of those uh, times I was actually um, 
on uh, maternity, when I was on maternity leave with my daughter, my boss was optimized, which <laughs> is a, a fancy word for fired. Mm -hmm. But when I came back, I had a team that I was managing and I was a breadwinner mom. And, uh, and then uh, a day after I came back from maternity leave, I was asked to take on a new team. And then two weeks later, I was asked to take on a third team, which is oh. great. It's great timing, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I'm breadwinner um, mom for a family of four. The only issue was I wasn't being offered any additional pay, either for the new teams I took on or any up-leveling. So I had a male colleague who, took a, who had one team, was one pay grade higher than I was, took on an additional team, and also received additional compensation for that new team. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't receive anything. So I went to my new manager and HR and said, well, like, you know, what do you want to do about this? How do you want to, uh, you know, so really grateful for the opportunity. It's great timing. How do you want to make me whole on my compensation? Uh, and I didn't hear anything. So I thought, well, this has got to be something that makes this illegal. Mm -hmm. So I went and found the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, which was actually the um, first piece of legislation that President Obama signed into law in January 2009. <laughs> uh, and essentially what it did was change the statute of limitations for equal pay from the, um, it essentially changed it from uh, when the decision was made to every time you pay someone inequitably, the statute of limitations starts over. So I called HR and said, well, this is a Lily Ledbetter issue. Every time you pay me, the statute of limitations starts over. What do you want to do about it? Oh, wow. What did they say? <laughs> so they increased my level, increased my pay and gave me back pay. And that was really, uh, you know, I had learned about women's rights um, and gender inequity when I was in college, obviously as a poli-sci major, but didn't really think it applied much. Mm -hmm. And that was really my first explicit experience with this and thought, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is, um, this really does apply today. Um, and thought, you know, it's great that they did the right thing, but why did I have to spend my time researching my rights? Um, Figuring it out, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, how might I how might I make that right? And I think from that point forward, you know, obviously I'd inherited some pay inequities because I inherited two teams and made a commitment that if you worked for me, I was going to do everything in my power to ensure you had both equitable pay and equitable opportunity. Hmm. Well, congratulations. And your story sounds very familiar to some of the questions that I have been getting over the last couple of years from, from our listeners. So thank you for sharing that. Um, certainly, certainly a hopeful message, though frustrating to listen to at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So sticking with, um, you know, gender economy, uh, let's look at what the U.S. workforce looks like right now. Like what percent of the workforce in the United States um, represents women? So women make up 47 percent. Well, so this is April 3rd, 2020. We don't know. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things happening, obviously, in the labor in the labor force, but uh, they right. Uh, right now, um, sort of pre-COVID, they make they made up uh, forty-seven percent of the labor base um, mm -hmm. in the United States. They actually occupied uh, the majority of all jobs, just over fifty percent. Um, and women, while women have been the um, uh, most, they've been the majority of all uh, bachelor's degree and higher. So they've been. Um, 
attaining uh, their education attainment has been higher than men's for a while now. They haven't mm-hmm. been participating in the labor force. However, from 2017 to 2019, uh, women were increasing their labor force participation and um, in the first quarter of 2019 actually became the most educated um, cohort in that actually actively participating in the labor force. So there's different elements. There's the wow. 47%. But then when you begin to call that down, um, it begins to tell a really interesting story about why gender equity matters and why it matters now. Interesting. So what can you, you know, since, since many of the, since, well, everyone listening to this podcast is in safety and health, which is a piece of, 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 of STEM practice, science, technology, engineering, and math. What do we know about women in STEM? Well, STEM really has, it tends to get grouped together, but there's really four pieces of STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. Mm-hmm. And when you look at science and math, we're almost on par from an education perspective and and labor force participation in science and math. There's, you know, probably a a few pieces where we could change and, but, but it's really technology and engineering. And those are really two of the fastest growing pieces of STEM where women remain, uh, you know, underrepresented and, Hmm. um, and we need to continue to focus. It's not, um, it, 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 there's sort of different pieces of that. Some of it starts uh, when um, some of it starts in school, right? So my kids are in elementary school and middle school. There are certainly programs we need to do there. But the other piece of it is that even we not only do we have a lower percentage of women going into technology and engineering, about 50 percent um, will actually leave uh, STEM in the first 10 years because of a hostile work environment. So we need to fix it on multiple threads. There's the pipeline coming in, but then there's actually the pipeline that's, um, uh, uh, we need to retain that pipeline. (laughs) Fascinating. I I know the, my, the, where my company is based um, in Washington state, there's quite an active pursuit at that, um, I think it's the junior high level um, that they're really working on encouraging kids to get into the technology and engineering like you're talking about, um, particularly because of the, 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 the workforce and the type of employers in the state of Washington. So I know that's been an active pursuit there for a long time. I bet other states perhaps have similar initiatives. Yeah. And then we need to actually ensure so that plus we need to ensure that the workplace that they're going into is equitable because mm-hmm. otherwise what we're selling them is not the truth of what's what is the reality that many of them face. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So could you explain the difference between what pay equity is and gender equity? Sure. So and it depends on if you're looking in the I'll do it from the workforce perspective. There's there's broader definitions as well. Um, okay. And I can talk a little bit about those. But uh, pay equity versus gender equity. Pay is a component part of uh, gender equity if we look at it through the lens of a company, through the mm-hmm. workforce. So pay is what you actually get paid, but then there's performance, so how your performance is actually um, evaluated. 
what potential track you get on. That is, are you being put in the succession pipeline for future leadership roles, um, how you're promoted and at what level and how quickly, as well as uh, hiring. So there's pay is one of about five component parts. There's also sort of sub component parts off of that in terms of what leadership positions do women actually have, because it's not enough just to say, well, the C-suite is 22% women, because oftentimes those are marketing and HR roles, which are not (laughs) often in line of secession for Mm -hmm. CEO. How many resources do they control? That matters. So there's different pieces when you look at it within a company that really make a difference. Um, and then I can talk about it sort of more broadly from a from a larger economic perspective. This is probably a loaded question. Not, we, I think we have to brace ourselves for what your answer might be. So how many years is it projected to take until we reach pay equity in the United States? Uh, in the Well, in the United States, um, I can answer that more globally than in the oh, U.S. Okay. specifically. So... What And we can look at it more from an economic lens. So economic uh, um, equality, um, actually, we added 55 years in the last year to economic equality on a global scale. And we're currently at 257 years until we reach economic equality. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) So... (laughs) So, oh, wow. Yeah, I guess we have to laugh because otherwise we wouldn't get through the rest of the podcast because we'd be crying. Uh, so why 55 years were added? Uh, well, there's different component pieces of that. And it goes to what I was talking about in the workforce in terms of where are women represented? You know, we just had equal uh, payday a few days ago on March right. 31st, which is obviously the aggregate payday in the U.S. Uh, oftentimes for women of color, it's later uh, in the year. White women, it's actually next week on April 9th. Um, but uh, pay equity, um, uh, when we look at pay, um, the 82 cents on the dollar, that's really, there's a piece of it that is truly about equitable pay for equitable work. But mm-hmm. another piece of that is actually about um, where you sit in the corporate ladder. Mm-hmm. So right now, uh, in the United States, or the uh, women are seven percent of all Fortune 500 CEOs, right? So wow. we are 51 percent of the population, and we're only seven percent of Fortune 500 CEOs. You juxtapose that with the fact that women are 62 percent of all minimum wage workers and occupy 70 percent of all the lowest paid jobs in the United States. That's when we're talking about economic equality. Mm-hmm. That's what you're talking about. You're talking about closing that gap. Wow. That's the 257 years. Whoa. And so if, if someone's reading this and they're like, what is the source of that information? Who gathers this information? What is the source, Karika, that people can be paying attention to? There's a number of different sources. We actually publish an equity for all day, uh, or excuse me, equity for all report. So the next one will come out on April 10th, which is a week from today. Mm-hmm. Uh, it includes both our original research as well as um, over 140 secondary resources. And we talk about it um, 
you know, through many lenses, uh, including global, the United States, the states, etc. Mm-hmm. So, um, so there are many uh, different resources, and that obviously will be available in the next week. Mm-hmm. And so, you just you just addressed um, pay equity. How many years until we reach gender equity? Um, well, that's an interesting number because it's an aggregate. Um, and uh, right now it sits at about 100 years. So there are some pieces, for instance, we know that education attainment is a, that's one piece of gender equity. That's actually quick closing, quickly closing and projected to close uh, globally in 12 years. Um, so there are, when it's, you're essentially looking at a weighted average, if you will, um, and that's where we get to the 100 years. Wow. So, <laughs> that's a long time. We'll all be long dead. Do you see? Do you do you see this shifting at all, Karika? You know, like, yeah. What can we be doing? Well, I think there's a couple of things that we can be doing. Um, one is uh, we are in the midst of the fourth industrial revolution, uh, which is changing things faster than they um, have ever been. And, uh, and really the slowest it'll probably ever be. And so this idea of embracing advanced technologies such as artificial intelligence um, and uh, cloud computing, which is sort of less new, but it provides the basis for the use of, of things like uh, artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And so uh, if we look to embrace advanced technologies, that can actually catapult us uh, forward toward gender equity. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Okay. Um, so within, um, there are uh, 30 million employees in the Fortune 500. And what Pipeline knows from its research is, is that there's three key decisions that you make across your talent every year, which mm-hmm. is performance, potential, and pay. And so for Fortune five for the Fortune 500, that's 90 million opportunities to move toward gender equity each and every year, <laughs> and that's really you know, and, and we can do that through embracing advanced technology. That's mm-hmm. um, and so we can catapult that and actually uh, close the gender equity gap in our lifetime. That is, I think that's the exciting part of the world that we live in today is that we are really at the um, place where we can catapult catapult that action uh, forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. So when it comes to, um, you know, other ways that we can impact um, gender equity and, and try to begin closing this gender gap, perhaps there's some things that um, women should know that could help us and, and men for that matter as well. So I'm wondering... Could you talk about how, when you were talking about um, performance, perhaps it fits in this bucket, how are women judged on their performance? What, is well, the, what are you finding on that? Yeah, so women, sort of generally, women are judged on their, uh, when we're looking at like succession planning potential, yeah. women are judged on their past performance rather than men are judged on their future potential. So when we look at, um, the opportunity for women to be developed as future leaders, to be on the um, in the succession line, uh, it's less likely that women will be there simply because we judge them based on have you already had that position? And obviously, mm-hmm. if you're going to be promoted, you haven't. <laughs> mm-hmm. and right. So, right. That's just the logic of it. 
What we've also found is that you can't close the gender pay gap by starting with pay. And the reason is that pay is the quantitative value that you place on your talent, but the actual value that you place on your talent happens in performance and then potential. Mm -hmm. So for instance, what we've found in performance is that for similar performance, so this is through pipelines implementations, mm -hmm. uh, similar performance, women actually receive lower performance ratings 4% um, of the time. Oh, wow. And that has an impact on their potential. It has an impact on their pay. It also, when you look at it across the lifespan of an employee, uh, has the, it really mimics pretty closely when we see women are about 50, 51% of entry-level positions, but yet they're only 22% of the C-suite. Uh, and it's those little pieces taken as a collective that either can push us backward or mm -hmm. can you know catapult us forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So some of, so if someone is listening and is thinking, okay, I need to make an ask in my company, whether it's an ask um, to be part of a decision or to get to the decision-making table, or maybe even asking for budget and you're a woman, it's, it's good to know that first of all, you're not starting in the same place, but what may help you, it sounds like, is if you, if you bring evidence of your past performance into that request, is that what I'm hearing? Yes. I tend not to give advice to women, but yes, yes. of course. Okay. <laughs> because, right. but I, I, yes, as a general rule, and I'll tell you why I don't do that. But as a general rule, uh, and something I've done throughout my career is just quantify everything. So yeah. understand what are the success measures, what does success look like in the, in the beginning and actually try and, and work to get actual metrics. Like mm -hmm. what does that look like? Right. Uh, and then quantify that, um, I used to actually do it in every single one-on-one -on -one I had with my boss and then as a collective over the year. Um, but mm -hmm. yeah, and I will tell you the reason why, you know, certainly I'm happy to share my kind of uh, tips and tricks of my career, but the reason why I'm very careful not to give women advice is that most of the gender diversity, gender equity efforts in companies have been focused on that. Yeah, They've essentially come from the place that women are broken uh, and we need to fix women. It's just, you know, the women weren't, you know, they, they don't know how to be in the workplace. And so they don't negotiate or they don't apply for jobs or they, mm -hmm. you know, um, end their speech with an uptick, whatever that is. The issue, that's not the issue. It is a false narrative. Mm -hmm. The issue is that women are not broken. The system is broken. The system it was not designed to value women equitably. And so because of that, it doesn't. So we need to fix the system and not fix women. Otherwise, what happens is then somebody brings data to the meeting and they think, oh my gosh, that was my fault. But in that, <laughs> it's, the, it's, it's very much the, um, you, I think the most kind of common um, uh, narrative that happens around this is, is this, uh, well, women will only apply for jobs if they have 60% of the qualifications and men, or excuse me, a hundred percent of the qualifications and men, if they have 60%. Mm -hmm. And so we just need to get women to apply for more jobs. Well, the issue with that, just as an example, is that mm -hmm. women, um, is that the, we, that's only half the story. The other half of that story is that the person sitting on the other side of the table deciding whether or not you can do that job is using the very same criteria. That is, women are judged on their past performance. Men are judged mm -hmm. on, their pa on, their, on their 
future potential. Mm -hmm. So we need to tell the entire story and fix the system. Yeah. And that's what that's that's a piece of what your company does is trying to fix that system uh, rather than rather than fix the genders uh, that are, that are part of it. Yeah. And I, and I want you to be able to talk about that too, as we, as we go on today. So thank you for that. Um, do, does gender inequity impact men as well? It, that's also one of this, um, these false narratives is that, uh, gender equity is a synonym for women's rights and it's not women hmm. are half the conversation and men are the other half. Um, if you just look at it with, from a workplace perspective, 48% of working dads would like to stay home with their children, but they don't. And a lot of that has to do with isolation um, and identity, the, sort of our collective definition of what it means to be a man. Mm -hmm. I will also tell you that Pipeline, uh, because, and we'll get to Pipeline, I know, in a minute, but we make recommendations about human capital decisions. And so we have closed pay gaps and performance gaps for women as well as men. It mm -hmm. is, and, and it's interesting when we go into companies and we mostly work with enterprise companies, so those that have 10,000 employees or more, um, when we talk about that, and, and we're not often the ones doing the communication, we're kind of behind the scenes, but we're helping the comms people put forth those communications. And I may or may not do a fireside chat or something like that yeah. um, for that company. We talk about that because Otherwise, there's this fear that comes up that says, well, wait a second, um, uh, particularly for men, like, wait a second, I'm supposed to be the provider. I don't, I'm now no longer viewing inclusion as inclusion. I'm, in views, I'm viewing inclusion as invasion. And so mm. we need to talk about this as a collective. It's also sort of going back to your first question around what is a gender economist. When yeah. you look at gender equity through the lens of economics, what you see is that gender equity is not an us versus them. It's not a black versus white. It is ultimately about equity for all. It's about economic opportunity for everyone. If, from, if we close the gender equity gap, that actually provides more opportunity for everyone, not just women. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It makes sense. Absolutely. So how, how do, you just said um, reference a second ago, how does uh, race and age um, impact pay? And is is there any good news for women in STEM? <laughs> yeah. Well, by the way, when I said black versus white, I didn't mean race and ethnicity. Oh, and I, realized, <laughs> I realized after I said that, oh, that's probably was going to be, that's okay. No, it's okay. I meant just, we tend to, um, you know, the, like that sort of us versus them. You're either with us or against us. That's what okay. I meant. And my Got apologies it. for a bad, uh, um, bad description, but in any <laughs> event, um, it does. And I think, you know, um, we, you know, intersectionality is particularly important. We know, for instance, I talked about this, but, you know, March 31st for this year was the aggregate equal pay day. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Asian women's equal pay day was actually earlier in the year because they have a smaller gap. White women's pay day is April uh, equal pay day is April 9th. They tend to make up the majority. That's why they're so close together. And wow. then, um, uh, Black women's equal pay day is later in the year. And then a Latina's equal pay day is um, 
like almost a year, it's almost at the end of the year. So when you're looking at those gaps, it's not um, intersectionality. And this is actually one of the trends that we've seen come up over the last 10 years, over the last decade, is this uh, talk about intersectionality, which is very important, intersecting both race and ethnicity with gender and also age with gender, that mm -hmm. you get a more complete picture. It also ensures that, um, that you really are looking at that full picture and you're not trying to silo people into gender and then race and ethnicity and then age that taken together that matters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Well, Katika, I'm interested to hear uh, and have you share with our audience about Pipeline. You are the founder and CEO of Pipeline Equity. It's a software company. Um, what is its mission? Uh, to bend the arc of history toward inclusion and make gender equity a reality in our lifetime. That's a beautiful mission. Thank you. How does it work? <laughs> so what, is it? <laughs> what does it do? It, um, so Pipeline is essentially augmented decision making. So much like you would use Waze or Google Maps to get from point A to point B, mm -hmm. uh, Pipeline does the same thing for your human capital decisions. So we okay. are at our core a recommendations engine. Uh, and what we do is intercept HR decisions across the five pillars of talent, which is essentially the five main buckets or categories that companies, um, decisions that they make about their talent. So that's hiring, uh, pay, performance, potential, and promotion. So what happens is, and, and hiring I should just mention, is actually internal hiring, not external hiring. The reason why is that the best way to attract diverse talent is to ensure that your existing diverse talent is successful and not just in their current role, uh, but across your company. Mm -hmm. So fundamentally how it works, you're a hiring manager, uh, you, let's say you write a performance review, that sends a trigger to the pipeline platform that you need a recommendation. So there's a backend connection from a technology perspective. Then we send a recommendation through. Uh, what that looks like from a performance perspective is we call out bias phrases uh, actual in, actually in the text of the performance review itself, as well as uh, rating recommendations. So any rating changes. And, and what that does is essentially ensure we tell it in the hr world it's called calibration but essentially mm -hmm. what that's doing is ensuring that ratings are applied equitably within the organization and it's a debiasing um vernacular that's being used in in written okay yeah contextually right. so you know it could be that mm -hmm. or hiring um is an example if you post a job requisition we find on average for our customers we find uh, for 86% of the job requisitions that they post, we find five or more qualified uh, internal candidates. So that's um, that's an example of um, how pipeline works. Hmm. Sounds it sounds powerful for employers. Are they are they often surprised or or um, like it's welcome information? Like we didn't know we had some internal candidates or how, how is it yeah. received? Uh, generally, it's received well. You know, we tend to work with companies who've already made a public commitment, typically through a public pledge to gender equity. They've often tried to do some of this work internally. Mm -hmm. They have 10,000 employees or more. 
Uh, so they're looking at scale, um, mm -hmm. oftentimes in more than one country. And so it's, um, it essentially makes this kind of very large um, charge, you know, this large mission that they're, they're charged with um, actually tangible. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things we talk about is pipeline takes what is intan which is what is often perceived as intangible, which is gender equity and makes it tangible uh, through the decisions that you're already making. Right. So it's taking that, that goodwill and that commitment and turning it into something that's actionable through, through, through tangible means. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing probably that's helpful to share about Pipeline is that we actually started with research. So we did a research study across 4,000 companies in 29 countries. And what we found was that for every 10% increase in gender equity, there's a 1% to 2% increase in revenue. And hmm. so that's so our whole model is not gender equity as a social issue or the right thing to do, even though we do believe that to be true. Mm -hmm. But all but really gender equity as an economic opportunity. That is, if you are not um, baking into your human capital decisions, gender equity, you are leaving money on the table and the uh, primary job of a CEO is to maximize shareholder value. Mm -hmm. And this is a re really key lever that they can pull uh, to have good return for their investors. Couldn't be any more important in our current economic climate as to have access to another lever. Fabulous. So Karika, in, in closing, and thank you so much for being here. Um, for anyone who's, who's listening and is feeling uh, perhaps hopeful by some of the things that you've said, or maybe angry or overwhelmed. Um, what do you what do you recommend for people to you know process what they've heard today, or conversations they can be having with uh, colleagues or friends, or in the workplace, to... or yeah. more broadly? <laughs> I guess. Well, right in the workplace, and uh, and, and you know with broadly. your yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, I think in the workplace, it is. Um, the, the, you know, we often talk about it's not enough to be angry or surprised that it's right. really important to catalyze that into action, mm -hmm. uh, you know, positive action for men and women, um, boys and girls. And so, uh, in the workplace, it's really focusing on how are we ensuring that the decisions that we're making, despite the current economic climate, and I would even say because of the current economic climate, it makes it even more important, mm -hmm. um, are equitable, that we are ensuring that there's equity in those uh, decisions. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. those, though, at scale, I think those are the, the questions that are important to ask in terms of not just pay and pay equity, though I think that's a, something that gets pushed on a lot and certainly it's an important piece, but what about performance? What about succession planning? What about promotion? You know, really mm -hmm. starting to look at those pieces. You know, I think more broadly and particularly in the world, uh, the COVID-19 world that we currently live in um, and, you know, with the economic stimulus that has been passed, we have been um, very focused uh, from a brand perspective on what the broader economic implications of um, the economic crisis caused by COVID-19 will have, mm -hmm. uh, particularly for women and their families, because as I mentioned, the women are 62% of all minimum wage workers. They are also 70% of the lowest paid workers in the U.S. Um, there are, uh, just to give you a few more stats on that and, and, and what some of the things we're recommending, but 
Um, mm-hmm. There are 16 million breadwinner moms in the U.S. They support 28 million children. So 40% of the households in the U.S. with children under the age of 18, women are the breadwinners. There are wow. 15 million women and 12 million children who live in poverty in the U.S. and 13 million women and 4.3 million children in uh, the U.S. without health insurance. So when mm-hmm. we think about currently where... Um, the economic stimulus that's being passed, one of the things that we've really advocated for is for Congress uh, to ensure that they're taking gender budgeting, which is essentially a slice of, um, you know, of uh, what I talked about from being a gender economist Mm -hmm. into the fiscal stimulus to understand that, you know, if you're a single mom, $1,200 and $500, $1,700, half as much money as you would get for a family of four is -hmm. probably not enough. You know, and that there are certain things that we must put into place to ensure that women and their families do not bear the brunt of um, uh, of this economic crisis. One of them, just quite simply, is student loans. Women are 57 percent of all college graduates, but they hold 67 percent of all student loan debt. Why? Why? Why is that? How can Um, we have more debt? (laughs) It's two. There's two reasons why the pay gap starts when they're in college. So they have to take out more loans. And women um, are also less likely to be um, have financial support from their families to go to college. <clears throat> so uh, so they they take out more loans and, the, and it takes them longer to pay off the loans because of the gender pay gap. Hmm. Um, and so uh, so uh, def- deferring student loans is a great first step. It puts about three hundred and ninety bucks on average uh, back into Um, the budgets of uh, folks who are impacted by COVID. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, we need to look at what might student loan forgiveness look like? You know, Mm -hmm. how, how, because this is a really key lever from a gender budgeting perspective that actually we can immediately keep more money in people's wallets. And we know with the more, that 70% of the U.S. economy is based on consumer spending. If you can put more money back into people's wallets, they can actually have more discretionary income to spend. And that's good for our economy. I mean, that's the math, right? This is not a giveaway. This is an investment in our Economic. Um, economic recovery mm-hmm. and making mm-hmm. it stronger and faster. Uh, so, so that's one example that we fundamentally believe that people can advocate for right now. It doesn't take money. It just takes a little bit of time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. M- makes complete sense. And thanks for sharing the math of it. Appreciate that. Karika, are there any resources or networks um, that you'd recommend for people to be paying attention to right now? Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things for uh, Pipeline in particular. One is that uh, we actually just launched. It's uh, it is an election year. And so in a few. Right. Right. And and, (laughs) that was all the news. And then all of a sudden it's all there's it's all COVID, which makes sense. It it should be that. But Mm -hmm. it is an election year. And um, if you go to KatakaRoy.com. Uh, there is a voting guide which actually looks at 15 campaign issues. What it's nonpartisan. Uh, what you can look look for in uh, uh, politicians um, 
their uh, uh, platforms mm -hmm. to ensure that they're actually standing forward on uh, gender equity. It's free. Uh, you can download it. It came from uh, an article, a couple of articles I wrote for Fast Company. One was about gender mainstreaming, um, which is gender budgeting is a part of that. But one is gender mainstreaming, which is about public policy. But the other was I actually um, interviewed four of the then presidential candidates about their commitment to gender equity and then you know kind of took those two pieces and wrote the voting guide so mm -hmm. the voting guide is definitely something we would recommend um and then the equity for all report will come out um next uh friday april 10th so mm -hmm. folks can go to pipelineequity.com um and uh will ha and it actually pops up on that on that page and people can and that's again that's um that is free as well mm-hmm mm -hmm. Katika, thank you so much for your time today and sharing your wisdom. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. Really appreciate it. You're very, very welcome. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. And thank you all for spending your time listening today. And more importantly, thank you for your contribution, making sure your workers, including your temporary workers, make it home safe every day. If you'd like to join the conversation about this episode or any of our previous episodes, you can follow our page and join the Accidental Safety Pro community group on Facebook. If you're not subscribed yet and want to hear past and future episodes, you, you can subscribe in, the, in iTunes, the Apple Podcast app, or any other podcast player you'd like. You can also find all of the episodes at vividlearningsystems.com slash podcast. We'd love it if you could leave a rating and review us on iTunes. It really helps us connect the show with more and more safety professionals like you and I. If you have a suggestion for a guest, including if it's you, please contact me at social at vividlearningsystems.com. Special thanks to Will Moss, our podcast producer. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>